You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our subject in this eighth lecture is human rights. I will discuss uh, natural law in my written text. In trying to get students to understand the limitations of human rights, I usually ask them to imagine a reformulation of the great commandments in the New Testament. Remember, it says that we have to love God with a whole heart and soul and love our neighbor as ourself. Well, imagine if it was reformulated to read, you have a right to be loved by God and a right to be loved by your neighbor. Well, we would all sit back and say, okay, neighbor, come and love me, or God, you should really be busy loving me. And it would be totally different emphasis than the one presently found in the Bible, which says for us to get busy and to love God with a whole heart and soul. And the language of rights has become the moral language of political discourse in the secular domain and to a large extent in Catholic social thought. We are all familiar with the affirmation in the Declaration of Independence that all people have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the purpose of government is to protect those rights. Surely life would be less cruel and more pleasant if governments throughout the world protected the above-mentioned rights. We Americans are proud that our government does such a good job of protecting the rights of so many citizens. The legalization of the right to abortion by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1973, however, has unmistakably revealed that rights can be invoked to justify doing something that is wrong, taking the life of the unborn. The court said that the right to life guaranteed by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution includes the right to privacy, and it further asserted that the right to privacy includes the right to choose abortion. Several years ago, Oregon established by state law that people have a right to euthanasia and to physician-assisted suicide. In the Netherlands, euthanasia has been practiced for many years. People are even put to death without their consent. Well, in Rome this past winter, I even heard that some older people are leaving the Netherlands for fear that their right to euthanasia will be exercised without their consent. About a year ago, 2002, Belgium also passed a law authorizing the practice of euthanasia. Now, a number of scholars have noticed that rights have been used both to defend life, liberty, and property and to propound extreme forms of individualism that disrupt community life and even amount to license at times. Perhaps the most prominent of these scholars is a Catholic lawyer teaching at Harvard Law School, Marianne Glendon. Her book, Rights Talk, The Impoverishment of Political Discourse, is an excellent introduction to thinking about the exercise of rights in America. I would like to tell you something about Glendon's diagnosis of the problem of rights and then briefly discuss the attempt of Catholic social thought to use and tame the language of rights by examining Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, published in 1891. Glendon's book should help American citizens understand why the preoccupation with creating and asserting rights 
undermines public morality. Glendon argues that the pervasive presence of rights talk in political, social, and cultural life causes difficulty in defining critical questions, finding common ground for discussion, arriving at compromises in the face of intractable differences. Rights talk is silent with respect to personal, civic, and collective responsibilities. Furthermore, simplistic rights talk, says Glendon, simultaneously reflects and distorts American culture. It captures our devotion to individualism and liberty, but omits our traditions of hospitality and care for the community. Now, Glendon is by no means making an argument for abandoning the American rights tradition. Rather, we must supplement the language of rights with that of duty and responsibility in the law, public life, culture, and everyday life. Now, this is not a utopian task, according to Glendon, because Americans already employ more complex ways of speaking around the kitchen table, in their schools, workplaces, and in their various communities of memory and mutual aid. This way of speaking does include a language of relationship and responsibility that could help refine our language of rights. Glendon argues that legal concepts, especially rights talks, have permeated popular culture and political speech. She explains, there is no more telling indicated of the extent to which legal notions have penetrated both popular and political discourse than our increasing tendency to speak of what is important to us in terms of rights and to frame nearly every social question as a clash of rights. These two tendencies lead Americans to mis misperceive the social dimension of the human person. Under the influence of the rights paradigm, they fail to recognize personal and collective duties. For example, focusing on the absolute right to property and to abortion, they may neglect both their duty to put their talents and material goods at the service of others and to avoid improper sexual relations. Otherwise stated rights talk impairs self-knowledge. People assert mere desires under the cover of an appeal to rights. The assertion of rights comes to take the place of giving reasons for attitudes, actions, or omissions. Describing social issues as a class of rights, such as a woman's right to choose abortion versus the fetus's right to life, exacerbates conflict and inhibits perception of the alternatives to abortion as well as the gravity of the option for abortion. Any kind of duty to avoid killing is hardly discussed. Public rhetoric, says Glendon, regularly glosses over the essential interplay between rights and responsibilities, independence and self-discipline, freedom and order. American public officials often talk about rights as if they had no intrinsic relation to duties. Glendon astutely notes that even our founding documents, such as the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, have nothing comparable to statements on duties in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights promulgated by the United Nations after World War II. The United Nations Declaration says that everyone has duties to the community and that it is appropriate to place limitations on everyone's rights for the purpose of securing due recognition and respect for the rights and freedoms of others and of meeting the just requirements of morality, public order, and the general welfare in a democratic society. Glennon contends that the persuasiveness of rights talk and the virtual absence of appeals to duty are weakening people's sense of responsibility. She goes so far as to say that simplistic rights talk corrodes the fabric of beliefs, attitudes, and habits upon which life, liberty, and all other individual and social goods ultimately depend. 
London next seeks to explain the persistence of absoluteness in our property rhetoric and in our rights rhetoric in general. In discussing the question, she shows how the American way of life has been profoundly affected by the fascination with property and privacy or the right to be left alone. She traces our love affair with property ultimately to John Locke and more approximately to Blackstone's influence on those who drafted the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and the seminal decisions of the Marshall Court. Locke taught that people own their bodies as a God-given right and that governments are instituted to protect life, liberty, and property. Now, the American fascination with property caused two important legal issues to be mishandled by the Supreme Court in the second half of the 19th century, one dealing with slavery and the other with the attempt to shape an American welfare state. In Glendon's words, in 1856, Dred Scott, who had entered federal court in Missouri, left it as a piece of property when the Missouri Compromise, prohibiting slavery in the territories, was held unconstitutional. From the latter years of the century up to the 1930s, the Supreme Court repeatedly invoked property rights in an expansive form to strike down a series of laws that taken together might have served to ease the transition here, as similar legislation did in Europe, to a modern mixed economy and welfare state." End quotation. The Supreme Court invoked the right of employers and employees freely to make contracts and to control their property as reasons for invalidating statutes that attempted to promote health and safety in the workplace, to protect female and child laborers, and to encourage the nascent labor movement. As is well known to students of constitutional law, the Supreme Court began a retreat from its exaggerated constitutional protection of property rights in the 1930s by upholding New Deal legislation. Now, after the court abandoned the notion of absolute property rights, it eventually began to find absoluteness in the realm of personal rights. Glendon explains, much of the attention the Supreme Court once lavished on a broad concept of property, including the freedom of contract to acquire it, it now devotes to certain personal liberties that it has designated as fundamental. The rhetoric of absolute property rights is simply transferred to the area of personal liberties causing familiar difficulties in working out principal limitations on a right that seem for a time to have no bounds. As an example, Glendon mentions the extreme interpretations of the First and Second Amendments. One group of people do not want any restrictions on free speech and other forms of expression, and another group favors an absolute or nearly absolute individual right to bear and keep arms. Glendon notes an intriguing irony. Says, Many of the same people who claim that the right of free expression trumps a community's interest in regulating pornography argue that the right to bear and keep arms has to be regulated for the sake of the general welfare. On the other hand, I would note that many people defending the absolute right to bear arms, such as semi-automatic weapons, are likely to defend the duty of the community to regulate pornography. Understanding the First Amendment or Second Amendment rights as absolutes causes substantial harm to the general welfare. Now, before going on to discuss in some detail personal liberties, especially the right to privacy, Glendon offers an explanation for the American tendency to absolutize rights. First, she suggests that the stark formulation of rights in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights has influenced the American mind. The founding documents neither limit rights nor mention duties. 
Second, the Lockean story about property and Blackstone's flights of fancy about property as absolute dominion stuck in American legal imaginations. Thirdly, there is the pervasiveness of legal culture in the United States. Glendon mentions Tocqueville's observation that America is a lawyer-ridden society. The strategic exaggeration and overstatement characteristic of lawyers in their adversarial roles have had an effect on most citizens. Citizens come to think about rights the way lawyers talk about them. In a chapter revealingly entitled The Lone Rights Bearer, Glendon discusses the origin and implications of the protean right of privacy. She argues that the history of the American version of privacy should shed light on yet another distinctive feature of the American rights dialect, its extraordinary homage to independence and self-sufficiency based on the image of the rights bearer as a self-determining, unencumbered individual of being connected to others only by choice. The rights dialect gives Americans an image of themselves at odds with the reality of their lives as members of families and various communities. The major impetus for recognizing a legal right to privacy, said Glendon, was the invention in the 19th century of instantaneous photography and the development of rapid means of communication. Americans desire protection from unwanted intrusion into their public life. A famous 1890 Law Review article written by Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis provided a legal rationale for warding off the unwanted intrusions. Warren and Brandeis used two intellectual paradigms to make their case. The first was the traditional idea of property as marking off a sphere around the individual which no one could enter without permission and is providing the most reliable basis for individual independence. The second paradigm was that provided by John Stuart Mill in his essay on liberty. Mill was worried about majority oppression of minorities, even through law or social pressure. So he argued for the absolute independence of the individual in what merely concerns himself. He wrote, over himself, over his body and mind, the individual is sovereign. In this perspective, the state can only interfere with the individual's freedom in order to prevent harm to others. With his principle, Mill was proposing to put a vast area of conduct and opinion off limits from regulation and to do so by virtue of a right. Otherwise stated, Mill restricted governmental interference with individual liberty considerably more than Locke. Now, it took quite a long time for the Brandeis-Warren project of protecting privacy to become the modern constitutional right to be left alone. Glendon mentioned some important steps along the way. Brandeis' dissent in a 1926 federal wiretaping case, a 1950 speech entitled The Right to be Left Alone by Erwin Griswold, dean of the Harvard Law School, then Griswold versus Connecticut, the 1965 birth control case upholding the right to marital privacy, and finally, Eisenstadt versus Baird, 1972. Glendon believes that this case gives full-fledged constitutional status to Mill's essay, Ideas on Liberty. It recognizes the right to privacy as an individual right, having no necessary connection to marriage and family life. Eisenstadt versus Baird not only put the right squarely on an individual basis, but it marked a shift from privacy as freedom from surveillance or disclosure of intimate affairs to privacy as the freedom to engage in certain activities and to make certain sorts of choices without governmental interference. Eisenstadt not only marked 
the elevation to constitutional status of an individual's right to be left alone, but it represented substantial acceptance of Mill's ideas about freedom and conduct. Shortly after Eisenstadt came Roe v. Wade in 1973, which the decision which found a constitutional right to abortion in the right to privacy. Now we accept Mill's relative silence regarding the meaning of harm to others as well as his unconcern with indirect and long-range harm. However, the American legal system, Glendon believes, has taken Mill's ideas on freedom of conduct further than he did. His stern sense of responsibility to family and country and his decided rejection of any notion that all lifestyles were equally worthy of respect largely dropped out of sight. Furthermore, the law makes no mention of law Mill's elitist reasons for fostering the individuality of superior individuals, namely that the average man may be willingly led to wise and noble things. By making a radical version of individual autonomy normative, we inevitably imply that dependency is something to be avoided in oneself and disdained in others. By exalting our autonomy to the degree we do, we systematically slight the young, the severely ill or disabled, the frail elderly, as well as those who care for them. Our insistence even in divorce law that self-sufficiency should be the goal for everyone in practice leaves women bearing the brunt of responsibility for children and other persons in need of care while running the main risk of family dissolution. The image of the person in law, Glendon argues, contradicts real life in America. The young, the old, and the sick are necessarily dependent. Women who have worked at home raising children cannot usually go out in the marketplace and secure a job paying a big wage. In the 10 minutes that remained, we would like want to turn now to Leo XIII's Rare and Navarum to see how the Pope tried to integrate the rights language into the Catholic tradition, but also to tame it so it would not have some undesirable effects. You know, his encyclical, we will recall, is divided into four parts. The first part is an argument against the socialism and a defense of a right to property, and then there is an argument about what the church can do to benefit civil society, what the government should do, and then what private associations, namely employers and employees, can do. Anyone steeped in the theological and political thought of Augustine and Aquinas will be somewhat startled to find Leo XIII begin his encyclical with the defense of the right to private property. Leo's ringing endorsement of a natural and sacred right to property was a response to socialists who were proposing the abolition of private possessions in favor of state administration of all goods. Leo XIII and the socialists were in agreement on the problem, the penurious condition of the working class. Leo, however, rightly believed that the socialist solution would ultimately harm workers by causing disorder in society, a harsh and odious enslavement of citizens, and a low economic standard of living for all. As an explanation of this last point, Leo writes, if incentives to ingenuity and skill in individual persons were to be abolished, the very fountain of wealth would necessarily dry up and the equality conjured up by the socialist imagination would in reality be nothing but uniform wretchedness and meanness for one and all without distinction. What's more, the socialist remedy is openly in conflict with justice inasmuch as nature confers on man the right to possess things privately as his own. Leo affirms a true and perfect right for a worker to demand his wage and to spend it as he wishes. 
A worker may also exercise full control over any land he may buy with his wages. Workers, says Leo, need the freedom to dispose of their own wages and land in order to have the hope and opportunity of increasing their property and securing advantages for themselves. Leo clearly implies that society must rely on the self-interest individuals to procure the necessities of life. Now, Leo's initial statement on the right to private property bears a striking resemblance to the teaching of John Locke, who is justly regarded as one of the fathers of capitalism. Leo sounds Lockean, especially in affirming that an individual may dispose of his wages and land as he wishes. And by holding that individual rights are well grounded and solid apart from any connection to individual duties. Leo does offer a corrective to his initial Lockean position on the use of property by affirming that a father of a family has a duty to provide for his offspring. It is a most sacred law of nature that the father of a family see that his offspring are provided with all the necessities of life. Now, Thomas Aquinas never argued that anyone had a natural right to property, much less a sacred right. He did say that the division of possessions is not according to natural right, but rather arose from human agreement. Hence, the ownership of possessions is not contrary to natural right, but in addition thereto devised by human reason. Aquinas defended private ownership not as a right, but simply as an efficient means of promoting industry, order, and peace. Now, the first section of Leo XIII's encyclical is not the whole story on Leo XIII's view of property. In subsequent sections, Leo puts forth the traditional Catholic teaching on property and even cites Thomas Aquinas. But in his own words, he says, Christians have an obligation to use their property and talents for their own good and the good of others. In his words, whoever has received from the bounty of God a greater share of goods, whether corporeal and external or of the soul, has received them for this purpose, namely that he employed them for his own perfection and likewise as a servant of divine providence for the benefit of others. End quote. In the section on the role of the state, Leo XIII clearly says that duties owed to God take precedence over rights belonging to human beings. In this Leonine perspective, it makes no sense to speak of individual rights to property apart from obligations to love God, self, and neighbor. Ram Navarum teaches that nothing in life is more important than virtue. Those examining the example given by Jesus, says Leo, cannot fail to understand these truths. The true dignity and excellence of human beings consists in moral living, that is, in virtue. Virtue is the common inheritance of man, attainable equally by the humblest and the mightiest. Now, Pope Leo XIII's attempt to use and tame the modern rights teaching was a grand effort. Leo tried to integrate pre-modern virtue tradition with the modern rights tradition stemming from Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Now, this is an immense task, since the originator of rights doctrines, Thomas Hobbes, completely divorced rights from any notion of a summum bonum, the highest good. In other words, for Hobbes, the exercise of rights was not guided by this highest good. Now, according to the modern understanding of rights, individuals are free to create their own values. In one of the abortion cases, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court said, 
at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Quite a right. Ernest Fortin's comment about the implications of this assertion is enlightening. Quote, the only just society is the one that grants to each individual as much freedom as is compatible with the freedom of every other individual. It has nothing to say about the good life and is not concerned with the promotion of virtue. Its sole function is to ensure the safety of its members and provide for their comfort, end quote. These theoretical observations, as well as the experience of living in America, show that rights are not that easily integrated into the pre-modern virtue tradition. Rights tend to be understood and lived as though they are divorced from the highest good, as Harms affirmed in the 17th century. Now, for many years, I have been asking my students, who are mostly Catholic, why they respect the rights of others. And they invariably respond, so that other people will respect mine. They hardly ever say, because it is the right or virtuous thing to do. Yet I believe that many of them do respect rights because it is the right and virtuous thing to do, but they simply do not know the language of virtue. As mentioned before, Vatican II's Gaudi Mespez, number 41, tries to connect rights to the divine law and suggests that rights have to be guided by the divine law. This approach would put rights in the kind of framework teleological to be exact, that would enable Catholics to integrate rights doctrines with traditional teachings on virtue. But until this perspective finds its way into local catechisms, Sunday homilies, and subsequent church documents, most Catholics will not understand it. People with a secular perspective on rights would have a great deal of difficulty accepting that rights are subordinate to the divine law or otherwise stated to the highest good. The church could perhaps persuade non-Catholics and non-religious people that rights must be exercised in the light of some shared understanding of the good, however minimal. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.